see you all this Sunday, and welcome to Woven. Um, a few announcements that I will make, and a few uh, housekeeping stuff, actually. I want to set that straight. Somebody beautifully uh, crafted that cross for us, and uh, it would be a mistake. We would be amiss to show it uh, backwards. Um, First of all, I want to acknowledge a special guest that's in our midst. Uh, for me personally, um, it's somebody that obviously had a big impact on my life and is, <laughs> as fathers usually will have on their sons. And so I just want to acknowledge my, my dad is here, and um, uh, he's um, a big uh, supporter of this church in many ways in prayer and um, and so it's good to have him in town, and he, he'll be here until Wednesday. So my dad is visiting, and I hope you can get a chance to meet him. The second announcement that I have is uh, pertaining to the town hall meeting that's coming up on December 3rd. On December 3rd, uh, my leadership team, our leadership team here advised me, and um, I, I'm listening to their good advice, to share before December a few important uh, details uh, Actually, at our annual meeting, our members meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago, we said that we would be sharing some information before Thanksgiving. And so in the spirit of truth-telling and keeping our word, we will sh- I will share a few things now, and you are certainly welcome to ask me personally, or you can ask uh, Paul, who is chairing the, leader- the location committee, or you can speak with Tanya or John, who is not here today, about more details um, about this. But what I can share today, since this is the announcement before Thanksgiving, and please do be in attendance on, at December 3rd for our town hall meeting, what I can say is that we have a very strong possibility, a very strong possibility for having our own space uh, within a few months. Within a few months. Now, uh, a lot of the details are still being ironed out. And in the end, it's going to have to be ratified by all of you, our congregation. Um, But uh, what it's looking to be is our own 24-7 space where we can uh, leave our equipment so we don't have to set up and break down every Sunday. Um, And the location is looking to be on Eldridge. Eldridge. And that's going to be a little bit east of here on Sunday mornings. Uh, You can probably get there from here if you live in this vicinity within 20, 15 minutes even. Um, And Eldridge, Eldridge, is that road or drive? Parkway, Eldridge Parkway. Uh, And so this new location is going to be on Eldridge. The specifics about the the arrangement, you're going to have to speak to me personally or LT or Paul because there's a lot of fine, finer details to this. But Um, It's looking to be a very real possibility. The good news about this new location, not only do we not have to set up and break down, it will be our space, Um, it it will be very affordable. And this is going to involve the lending arm of our denomination, and they are going to make this uh, a reachable goal for us so that we're not going to break the bank financially. This is well within our range. And it is going to be more, it, it's looking to be more than just a, a, a renting, leasing situation. It might be something that is a part ownership, 
situation, maybe even full ownership. It's, there's still some details around that, but it's going to involve build-out. And um, this could happen potentially within three months, within three months. And so kind of for those of you that kind of just walked in, just to reiterate, we are looking at a new location within three months that's going to be very affordable, that's going to be on Eldridge Parkway, Eldridge Parkway. And so for those of us that drive in from long distances, this is going to be much more closer. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, um, we want you to be in the know as well. This is not something that, you know, we're keeping under wraps. I, I don't want our leadership at this church to be something where we're, we're kind of keeping things under wraps. Anything that I know, I am happy to tell you. And so um, that's as much as I can share for now for lack of uh, time. There's a lot of details to this arrangement, but you can speak afterwards if you have more questions. But this is looking to be a reality, I'll say that much. Um, we've had some very important conversations with people that can make this happen within our denomination. And so um, this is beginning to look... I, I sense that there's a new season that's coming behind our church. And um, in the end, uh, you'll have questions that we can talk more about this at our town hall meeting. Okay, so that's a lot of information. Take a deep breath and let's get into Scripture. Let's get into Scripture. We have been studying the letter of Ephesians in a series called Dear Woven. And Dear Woven, it's a series about Paul speaking to Christians, not just in Ephesus. I believe this is a letter that is written to all the churches across all of time. And today, the message to us is... Household Ethics, and that's the title of today's sermon. And in previous weeks, Paul has been talking about how God is bringing together a new people, a new humanity, a multi-ethnic church. So with Jewish people and Gentile, non-Jewish people, Gentile, being brought together, this multi-ethnic church, how are we going to get along? How are we going to make peace? How are we going to be friends? How are such different people going to live together in harmony? And last Sunday, we talked about uh, ethics of a new humanity, so this new society, how will they live together? Today, we're going to talk about household ethics. How do Christian households live? And I'm going to talk along three headings, three headings about household ethics. The first heading is how do Christians live married? Or what does Christian marriage look like? That's the first heading. The second heading is what does Christian family look like? What does a family that is Christian look like? And third, what does Christian service look like? What does Christian service look like? Those are the three headings. Now, I tried to coincide this talk knowing that my, my, my dad was in town it's not that I want to preach at him, but I thought that thematically it would be good, even for my own soul, because when I prepare a sermon, it, it speaks to me. I get a lot out of my own study. And so I thought it would be good timing for me to study what it means to be a Christian family and good Christian marriage. What does that look like um, for this week? We'll see. I, just even having my dad here today, I, I have a feeling I'm going to have to fight back a couple of tears, but that's okay. So... The first heading, what does Christian marriage look like? What does it mean to be married? 
And for this, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that word subject can also be translated submit. Submit. The word submit in the Greek means to put yourself under. And so Paul starts off this section on marriage, on marriage, listen to this, saying you have to submit and put yourself under each other. And this transitions the section where Paul is talking about uh, all of the church and now he's talking about the family. And in between the section about the church and the family, he says you have to submit to each other. You have to submit and listen to each other. Put yourself under. When we started this church three years ago, almost three and a half years ago, one of the biggest things I knew I had to get right as a leader was I had to submit to my leaders and that I had to listen and that I had to keep them in the know and I had to not do things by myself. And I know that it's easy as a leader to say, I'm just going to do this my way and do it myself. And that's a good way to lose people. And so submission is something mutually that must be done. It must be done in the church, but it must be also done in the household. Now, how many of you husbands have ever told your wife, you have to submit to me? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. It would be embarrassing. But that's what this next transition is in verse 22. Wives... Put yourself under, that's how we we can translate that word. Put yourself under your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so there's the connection. He's talking about the church, now he's talking about the family. Christ is the head of the church. Who is the head of the family? Paul says the head of the family is the husband. So do this as Christ is the head of the church. He himself is a savior of the body. But the church, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. I have studied this passage very carefully. And um, I think what we have here is a very strong rationale, strong argument for male leadership and marriage and female submission. The two arguments I hear is, number one, that word head. And that word head in the Greek, it talks about, uh, you know, there are different interpretations and different understandings. Are we talking about the top? Don't worry. Baby Eli's just got to cry it out. Every baby's got to cry it out. He's fine. He's fine. He's part of our community. We can accept. Maybe, Bobby, you should start screaming all of a sudden and then just distract our attention this way. It's okay. Um, the, head of the, the head of the body, uh, scholars have tried to say, maybe he's talking about something. No, I don't, I'm not convinced. The head here, the word head in the Greek is this similar word as the word headship um, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 says, everything is brought to a head and underneath Christ. And that I think is the thesis statement of all of Ephesians. So Paul is using the same word, kephale, head. They're saying that the head of the family is, or the head is, is the husband. 
And I've read the second argument. There di- I've read different things, different interpretations of verses 22 to 24. I personally am not convinced. I think Paul, I think Paul is saying what he's saying. The husband is the head. And so I think these are arguments for male leadership and female submission. Now, the women here are waiting for the other shoe to drop. And there is another shoe. Here's the other side. I think there are also arguments against. I don't think they are intrinsic to verses 22 to 24. And I will say two arguments against just male, uh, female submission to men. The first argument is that this is Paul speaking. And if you are going to build your entire theology and your perspective on just Paul, you have to listen to other voices as well. Uh, Even Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach a man or to speak. And yet, even Paul talks about Priscilla and Aquila in the Bible and how clearly Priscilla is the leader in that arrangement. I don't know if you've ever seen a marriage where the husband is very kind of meek and quiet, but the woman, is the, she's the force of nature. And even outside of Paul, we have to read the other stories. We have to hear about Deborah, uh, Esther, um, Ruth, many women, if it were not for them, operating in an anti-conventional way, the church would not be today. Christianity could not be what it is today if it were not for some woman operating outside of some of these conventional boundaries. The second reason why I think that submission is not just for women to men, it is mutual, it is textual, it's not in verses 22 to 24. Anybody know where it is? In verse 21. In verse 21. What does it say in verse 21? The same word, submit to each other. So there must be mutual submission. And even grammatically, there is something very, very interesting. Listen to this. Look in your Bible or look in your version, verse 21 and 22. Are these, how many sentences are there? Can anybody see it? There's two. There are two sentences. There's the first sentence that says, submit to each other. The second sentence says, the second sentence says, the wife should submit to the husband. Actually, in the Greek, in the original language, it is not two sentences. It is one sentence with a comma in between the two phrases. So what you have here are two phrases. The first phrase says you need to submit to each other, put yourself under one another, that Greek word hupatasso, submit to one another. And in the second phrase, it does not say submit. It actually says wives to their husbands. Now, the idea of submission is still there in the second phrase. But the point is this. Follow carefully because there's an important argument here. The point is submission is in the first phrase. But in the second phrase, wives to your husbands is dependent upon the first phrase. So grammatically... The idea is conveyed in the first phrase, submit to each other. The second phrase, wives to their husbands, is still dependent. The verb is not present in the second phrase. It's present in the first phrase. That is to say, the submission of wives to their husbands is grammatically dependent 
grammatically dependent upon the first half. You have to learn to submit to each other. In my life, I've tried to say verse 22 to my wife. It does not work very well. And you might have, husbands, you might have done it. And it's not something that I'm proud of. And what I counsel to my people today, uh, especially in premarital class, sometimes postmarital class, I say, if the husband says, my wife will not listen to me, and she will not submit to me, and I will say, well, how about you try to master verse 21 first? Master that, and then come back to me, and then we'll talk about how you can get her to listen to, to-, to verse 22. No one has ever come back to me saying, I've mastered verse 21 yet. And so that's my advice, and that's my way around it. Master verse 21, let's talk about verse 22 after you've done that, all right? But to this day, no one has come back. And even myself, I have not mastered verse 21. Submission, surrender, giving up to somebody else, this is a lifetime job. It's a lifetime work. And so... Paul continues in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for his wife. There, there's this uh, movie that came out. I don't remember the title of the movie, but the story is about how uh, there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake and then a man, husband and a wife and a child and during the earthquake, the, her, the husband was scared, and he ran off by himself to protect himself first. And then the whole movie is, and then they survived, everybody survived, but the whole movie is about the strained relationship when a wife knows that a husband cannot protect her, and a husband feels like, he cannot keep me safe, he cannot keep our baby safe. Husbands... Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Gave himself up. Half of counseling, premar- or not premarital, mar- half of marital counseling right there, 51%, is the problem where a woman does not feel like a man can keep her safe. Where she does not feel like a man is able to protect, defend, stand up for her. If you are not a big enough man, to make your wife feel safe and protected and like you are on her side no matter what, then you got to man up. That's it. Well, what about me? I have feelings. I have needs. What about my needs? You big sissy. <laughs> man up. Give it just one more percent. Come on. you got to give a little bit more of yourself. That's what I say. I'm always harder on the husbands. Why? Because you have all the perks and the privileges of life. You will always get more pay. You will always get more uh, job opportunities. You will always get more in life. And that's changing, but you've always had the advantage. So I will always be harder on the husband. Man up. Your wife needs to feel safe. She needs to feel the same way that we, the church, feel with Christ. Verse 26, so that Christ might sanctify the church, cleanse the church, wash her with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What does this sound like? Marriage. 
he presents to himself the bride in all of her glory with no spot. Imagine if a bride walked down the aisle and her dress and there was a big spaghetti stain on the dress. Or if there was mud on her train. Wouldn't that be awkward? But the bride is supposed to come forward how? Spotless, white, pure. And this marriage metaphor is a beautiful metaphor. Christ beholding his church in the same way that a husband needs to look at his wife. Literally in the Greek, his woman. And the woman to her man. For me, it's, I'm, I'm, in, I'm the luckiest person in a wedding because I get to see the first glimpse of the bride as she walks forward, right? And so a couple of weeks ago when we were at Sang and Chan's wedding, and then the door opened, and of course everybody saw Chan, but I get the direct, in some ways I, I got the, even the more direct view than Sang because Sang is, Sang is like this. Sang sees like this, but I can see the bride perfectly, and she's not looking at me. Who is she looking at? She's looking at Sang. And in that moment, I get to see them. I get to see both of them. And as she walks forward, and you can see Sang is crying, and every good husband will cry when he sees his wife for the first time, his wife to be walking down the aisle. So, friends, Husbands, you need to love, protect your wife in the same way that Christ loves and expects the church to walk down the aisle spotless. Everything that you've waited for, everything that you've longed for, the love of your life, as your eyes missed over and you see this person walking down the aisle. And we continue in verse 31. I'm going to kind of skim over here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is teaching here a little bit. Part of me wants to say, Paul, how do you know? You're not married. What does Paul know about family dynamics? You talk about changing family systems. How does Paul know? Well, Paul is getting theological here, and he's quoting Genesis. And in Genesis, it talks about how man will be joined to woman, and they will become one flesh. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother in order to cleave. That's what it says in Genesis. He will leave in order to cleave to his spouse, in order to make her feel safe, in order to make her feel protected, loved. And that's important. I'm just, just going to say this a little bit more. Your wife needs to feel loved and protected by you, safe. Um. But that phrase, do you hear that? There are two words that rhyme. Leave to cleave. Leave to cleave. How many of you have ever heard that before? Leave to cleave. Okay, the idea of leave to cleave means leaving your family of origin in order to cleave. Now, that word cleave can mean two things, and it's very interesting. Cleave means two things, but it both applies here. The first cleave, the first cleave is, we're all adults here. The youth today are in the back. Cleave, it's where you get the word like cling or, or to cleave together. Uh, it's when two warm bodies are clinging to each other. 
Do you understand the analogy? Do I need to get it more explicit? So cleave. So the idea of cleaving, that's what you do with your spouse. When two warm bodies, two warm bodies cleave together, you leave your family of origin in order to cleave to your spouse. After marriage, I've, I think I'm, I'm celebrating, oh dear, <laughs> going blank, but a good number of years now. <laughs> But after a couple of years, you start saying good night, and you turn and you go to sleep. Uh, or the husband stays up late, and the wife goes to bed, and the husband watches TV until 1 a.m., which husbands you should not be doing. Or the wife sleeps in another room. Or you don't touch each other. Now, friends, this is not good. You leave in order to cleave. Two warm bodies need to be together. And if you're not touching each other and the relationship becomes icy, there is something that you need to work on. Remember, cleave. You need to cleave. Two warm bodies. But there's a second sense to the word cleave where uh, cleave means to cut something in half. It's like uh, if a dwarf had an axe And he decided to cleave this table in half completely. It needs to be cut and separated. So cleave or, you know, I'm just going to say it, okay? Cleavage is about together but also about separate. So cleaving, cleaving something means to make a break. And psychologically, there must also be a cleaving away from the family of origin. I, I love my dad, but... I don't still sit on his lap and say, read me a book, or dad, hold me. I want to feel warm. For that warmth, I must turn now to my wife. And this cleaving from our parents and our family of origin is a necessary psychological experience in order for a person to be healthy. My observation, just going off the script here a little bit, is that in our society today, cleaving happens later and later. Children are dependent upon their parents later and later. I I hear more and more cases where children, it used to be when you're 17 years old, you cleave away from your parents and you get a job and you you live on your own and you you move on. Um, But these days, I think not just for Asian cultures, but many cultures, really, um, children are dependent upon their parents for longer periods of time. Look, with, with college tuition these days, our children are not really going to be self-dependent for a long time. They're going to need our help. And so dependency continues sometimes well into the 20s, into the 30s. And I think that's, that's the, the current state of things. That's my personal observation. But anyway, it takes longer and longer to cleave. It has to happen, however, sooner or later. So cleaving from. And so on the one hand... We cling, we cleave to our spouse, and this is what Christian marriage must be. Not icy. You must date each other. You must find ways to be warm. You must find ways to be intimate and, and, and just not kind of turning your back to each other every night. Christian marriage is about unity. Unity. And that, on that theme, Paul continues when he says, this mystery is great, in verse 32. This is a great mystery, as if Paul knows. (laughs) 
but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Ah, that's what Paul's talking about. What is Paul really talking about in this first heading? Unity. Paul's main concern, he's not a marriage expert. He's not Dr. Phil. He's not, who else is there? Steve Harvey, right? right? He's not a marriage expert. But one thing Paul is, is interested in the idea of oneness, oneness, oneness. That's what Ephesians is about. One new church, one new multi-ethnic church, one family, one marriage, just as God lives in unity with Son and Holy Spirit. So Paul's interested in unity. So marriage is about unity, being on the same team, and mutual submission. Mutual submission. Husbands, you will not succeed in getting your wife to submit. A great rabbi once said, the burden of change is on the stronger party. The burden of change is on the stronger party. And if there's a man, and this happens from time to time, and he just wants to whine and complain about all the things his wife, all the things that is wrong with his wife, I want to tell him all the things that is wrong with him. (laughs) If you want somebody else to change, the best way to do it is to change yourself. You cannot change another human being. But once we work on ourselves, you become the healthy person. The other person will become healthy as well. Okay, let's continue. Second heading is Family. What does Christian family look like? Now Paul talks about fathers and sons. Previously, what does Christian marriage look like? Oneness, mutual submission. What does fatherhood look like? And I think we can apply this to mothers as well. So the second heading, we're going to pick up from chapter 6, verse 1. Now look at that passage. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be, may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want to talk about this with four words. There are four imperatives. Imperatives are words that are commands. Um, and you can put an exclamation mark. Stop, that's an imperative. Go, that's an imperative. It's a command. The four Greek imperatives here, the first one is obey. Obey. And I remember when I was about 21 years old, and I was, um, at this time I was actually, I was in Montana, of all places. I was in Montana for a few months, and, and um, the, the, the ministers there, the, the people that were in charge of the ministry, they had small children, And I remember the mother saying to her child, who was about, at that time, three, four years old, saying, obey, obey. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's really heavy. Until I started saying it to my own kids. (laughs) Obey. It's not bad to expect your child to obey. If your child, and this is important because it says children, technon in the Greek. It's not talking about your 18-year-old son. (laughs) It's not talking about even your 16-year-old daughter. 
I, I don't have teenagers yet, but I mean, how, can you do that with your, with your daughter? Obey. Does it work? They're like, <laughs> try it when your kids turn that age. So it says technon, little children. This can be applied to small children. It is reasonable to expect your small children to obey. But then it changes. In verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, honor your father and your mother. So I think verse 1 is speaking to small children, obey. But verse 2, I think, is speaking to grown children, 16, 18, and above. Because when you're a small child, the relationship of obedience is still there. But when you are an adult, and this gets to the cleaving part, I am an adult now. When you are an adult, you are it, it, you are under obligation, biblical obligation to honor, honor your mother and your father. Now, this is interesting. I did a study, a careful study. Nowhere does it say love. Love your father and mother. And I think what that says is no matter how old you are, you have to earn love. No matter how old our parents are, they will have to earn love, Right? But we are always under biblical obligation to honor them, even if, it's me, even if it means offering a cold bowl of soup. If that's the best you can do, you have to honor your parents. But you don't have to love them. They have to earn that. They still have to earn that. Does that make sense? But it's important that we honor our parents. Why? Because this is the first commandment with a promise. And if you go to Exodus chapter 20, what does it say? This is the fifth commandment. Am I right? I believe it's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. I take this very literally. What Paul says here, listen to this. Paul says here in chapter 6 verse 2, Honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. What is Paul saying? Honor your father and your mother so that you can live a long time, right? So that you can live a long... No, no, no. In Exodus 20, it says, honor so that you can live long, where? In the land that God gave you. And what book is this? Exodus. So what's happening? Where are the Israelites going? To the promised land. When I moved to Houston... I felt like I was in my promised land. And living in my promised land and living long in my promised land and my work succeeding and everything that I do going well is contingent upon one thing, me honoring my parents. And if we understand the Old Testament biblical command, the fifth of ten, honor your parents you know that if you are living in Houston, we're all living in Houston, and this is where you are today, your enjoyment, your success, and everything that, that is good, that your, the blessings that you experience in this land is contingent upon your honoring of your parents. And so honoring our parents is the second imperative. Obey, honor. And then the third imperative is do not provoke. Or provoke is the imperative, but may, may, it's negated. Do not provoke. 
That word can be translated, do not exasperate. One commentator says, do not excessively, severely discipline. Don't give them unreasonably harsh demands. No abuse of authority. Now, this is different from obey. If your child says, I don't want to do my homework. I want to play with the iPad. Then you can, you can come down hard. You can say, no, obey. But if you are excessively uh, nagging or excessive unfairness, humiliating your child, insensitivity to their rights, this is what it means to provoke and exasperate. That's that Greek word, to exasperate or provoke. You know, the funny thing is I was preparing, the, I, prepare my, I prepare my sermons two weeks in advance. So I prepared the sermon two weeks ago, and I provoked my son. And he was mad at me. And I realized I had done wrong. There's two sides to this. Don't provoke. But every parent is going to provoke their child sooner or later. If you provoke your child, make sure you say you're sorry. Make sure you, were, make sure you say, I was wrong. Because if you do, if you, and I know part of, part of this is cultural, and that could apply to any culture, but if you, as a, if you know what it's like to live with a parent that never said that they're sorry, it's almost like they, they have carte blanche. They can, they can treat you however they want, and I don't deserve to be treated well. Your child is a human being that needs to be respected. And from time to time, we parents will disrespect our children. You must learn to say, I'm sorry, if you are a parent. If you cannot say to your child, I am sorry, I was wrong, your child will grow up damaged because they will think that it's normal to be abused or to be exasperated. And that parents have every right to do that to their children. Parents do not have every right unless we show them that it is wrong to mistreat people. Unless we show them that by leading by example with the words, I am sorry, they will grow up damaged. And that leads to the fourth and last imperative. Bring them up. Raise them. Bring them up in the Lord. Teach them. Show up. Be present. I don't have to say a lot about that because I think our parents are all, we have people that are present. Bring them up with candy and Xboxes and iPads and bring them up with rewards and ice cream. Is that what it says? What does it say? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the discipline and instruction. Fathers, I task you with this again. You have to teach your sons and your daughters. You have to teach them the right way. My son rolls his eyes when he says, Life Lesson 365, because I'm always teaching him about the world. You have to teach them discipline, not discipline spanking all the time, but discipline and instruction go hand in hand. You have to teach them. Mothers, Mothers, you must be their safety. You must be their warmth. You must also teach them. Many times, uh, there's, here's a great story, and I'll move on to the last heading. St. Augustine, St. Augustine, his mother, her name was Monica. Monica worried about her son so much because before he was St. Augustine, Augustine loved the cards. He loved the women. He loved the nightclubs. And she worried and worried. And this was around 300 
A.D. It's very early. And she said, when are you going to become a Christian? And one day she said, I had a dream about you, Augustine. I had a dream. And he said, Mama, what was the dream? What are you so worried about? And she said, I dreamt that I was standing on a long, narrow plank. And I was over here in safety, and you were all the way over there. And the angel came to me, and the angel said, Don't worry, Monica, because where you are, there he will be. Do you hear this? Mothers, I want you to hear this. Where you are, there he will be. And Augustine said to himself, oh, uh, he said to him, Mama, don't worry. I'll take care of you. You'll always be with me to the end. And she said, no, that's not what the angel said. The angel didn't say, where you are, I will be. The angel said, where I am, you will be one day. A woman of faith and a mother who is strong, nurturing, and loving will have her child with her always. Even if your child leaves in order to cleave with that woman, that child will still belong to you in the faith, will still be one who will look to you in the faith if you are godly, if you are bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Where you are, he or she will be. I want to finish off here really quickly, and then I want to say a prayer of blessing over mothers and fathers today. But finally, what does Christian service look like? Christian service, and I'm going to finish, wrap up here in a few minutes. Verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, know that, knowing that both master and yours, knowing their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, my question is, why is Paul basically, basically keeping the status quo of the institution of slavery? Why is Paul basically keeping the system in place? Why not just condemn slavery for what it is? Disgusting, evil, bad, and immoral. Well, the reason for that is because back then, slavery was a very, very different thing than it was in the last 300 years in our modern history. Slavery was bad. It could be cruel. But at the same time, in Greco-Roman society, slavery was... Well, one commentator says, in, in slavery during that time, Bible times, racial factors played no role. Anybody could be a slave, any race. Education of slaves was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were actually more educated than their owners. Many slaves carried out very highly responsible social functions. Slaves themselves were able to own property. Listen to this. Even other slaves. Slaves could even own other slaves. Uh, religious and cultural traditions are often the same as the firstborn, freeborn. Uh, there were no laws against public assembly of slaves. And most interestingly, listen to this, most slaves, in, most slaves could expect to be freed by the age of 30 in Greco-Roman society. And so slavery back then was a very, very different thing. It's not what we understand today. Still, the question is, does... This 
make slavery legitimate. This is why you have to be careful by taking one verse, like wives submit to your husbands, and building an entire worldview on it. Because those same people could also say slaves should submit to their masters and slavery should continue. You cannot build a whole theology on one verse. You must listen to what all of the Bible says. You must do interpretation and exegesis. And in conclusion, what I will say is, even though Paul does not eliminate slavery entirely, the seeds of the demise of slavery are still present. I'll close with this. You can see that freedom here is instituted when it's no longer to men, but to Christ. Bobby said this in a staff meeting. It's like employment. Bobby doesn't serve me. He serves Christ. And so when we serve Christ and not our bosses, or in this context, our masters, we become freed men and women. The psychology begins to change. When it says, you don't just do this by way of eye service, but as slaves of Christ, what happens is we ourselves become unslaved and we enslave ourselves to God. It is no wonder that reading book, books like Ephesians that people like William Wilberforce finally said it's time to do away with the institution of slavery as we know it. Christians led the way for abolition. Christians led the way. Why? Because of these ideas that are present here. Know your master. Know masters. Know their master and your master is in heaven. And there's no partiality. No partiality. And so we conclude, and in these three sections, we've talked about slaves, which really does not exist today, although some of you, Paul, you mentioned working for, you know, with year-end reviews. You might feel at this time that you're just a slave of your company. But we also talked about parenting. We talked about marriage. But the main idea that I'd like for you to take home in the end is chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another. Put yourself under each other. That's the only way everything is going to work. If you take chapter, verse 21 to apply even all the way to the very end, that even applies to the master-slave dynamic. Do you hear that? That even applies to the master-slave dynamic. Masters, submit to your slaves. Listen to them. Put yourself under them. Bosses, put yourself under your employee. Listen to, take care of, submit, subject yourself to your workers. Very, very different world dynamic here, friends. The gospel is completely revolutionary and very different. Let's close our eyes. If you are a mother, I want you to receive this prayer. 
God, help me be the woman that my child will always return to. Help me submit myself to my child. Help me to be able to say sorry when I am wrong. Help my son or my daughter to know that they are safe with me. Help me to earn their love. Protect my children and my household. If you are a father, you can pray with me. God, I am weak, and I don't always get it right. And I am learning how to do it right. Please help me to be a humble servant to my children, to my company, to my church, and to my family. Help me not to run away from my family, but to run to them and protect them with my own life and with my own body if I must. And for married couples, Lord, help us to love one another, to cling to one another, to cleave. Help us not to go to sleep angry. Help us to know how to have crucial conversations. Help us, Lord, to submit to one another and to take care of each other as our own bodies. And finally, Lord, for everyone else, I don't mean to uh, today uh, leave anybody out. It's just by nature of today's subject, talking about fathers and children and marriage. Um, but we pray for everyone in this room. For all of us, our children. All of us are children of somebody. Help us in our own relationship with our parents so that we would know how to honor well and receive the blessings of this land that you have brought us to today. We're fortunate and so thankful for this life that we have here in Houston. We are so grateful that you've given us many blessings. Help us, God, to know how to honor our parents so that we might live long in this land that you have given us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.